Hey, welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me. And I am going to have a lighthearted romp with you today through sexual abuse and manipulation. And listen, I thought about doing so many things for this episode. Um, I looked into this cult called God the Mother that sends recruits on college campuses. I read about that preacher lady who's also an author who uh, said like that a lizard appeared to her in disguise as her husband and tried to seduce her, but like she fought him off. <laughs> like what? I think she also told the story on Kirk Cameron's show. Um, I thought about talking about Mary Kay Letourneau. I thought about talking about pegging, but honestly, like if you want to know about pegging, I don't know, just see my episode on anal sex. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about the culture of Playboy. And just to preface this, I am obsessed with Playboy. I am obsessed with it. I came of age, like my late teens, early 20s was the Girls Next Door era. I was obsessed with that um, because it's just these women were so pretty and they were having so much fun and it just their whole lives were about being pretty and having cute cars and cute dogs. And I was so envious of that lifestyle. I've read every book written by anyone who's ever lived at the Playboy Mansion, um, except for Kendra's books. Sorry, I'm not going to read those. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm obsessed with Playboy. I'm obsessed with the mansion, the history of it, the architecture, uh, obviously the sexual revolution. And I feel like people fall into one of two camps with Playboy. Um, in the wake of his of Hugh Hefner's death a few years back, I so many people were like, "Fuck Hugh Hefner," and I, I honestly, I didn't know that many people hated him at the time. Um, and it's a complicated legacy. So, you know, Playboy premiered, I think, in... By the way, I have no notes. I'm talking about this all from memory. So, sorry, guys, if I get things wrong. Um, but it premiered, I believe, in, like, 1950-something. I almost said 54 with complete confidence, but it might be 59. Um, and Hugh Hefner had a $1,000 loan from his mother... And he bought these photographs that Marilyn Monroe had done that were supposed to be, I believe, like test shots for an artistic photographer. And it was before she was famous, you know, she was poor. She was trying to feed herself. Um, by the way, Marilyn Monroe, like not a great childhood. Uh, she basically got married so she wouldn't starve to death when she was 15 and uh, was abused, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he bought these photographs that, of Marilyn Monroe that she thought no one was ever going to see, and he published them in a nationally distributed magazine, which really put Playboy on the map. And sorry, my allergies are being weird today. It's not COVID because I already fucking had that. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a sip of my hot milk. Sorry, this episode is not brought to you by Diet A&W because I don't have any on hand. It's brought to you by Hot Almond Milk. Ah, are you an adult, but you want the comfort of childhood? <laughs> Hot milk. Um, 
So uh, that put Playboy on the map and the magazine's growth went alongside the sexual revolution. And this is where I think the legacy becomes complicated because like, yes, through today's lens, it was profiting off the sexual exploitation of women, 100%. But also Playboy magazine and the Playboy clubs were, um, what do they call it? (laughs) integrated at a time where segregation and Jim Crow laws were still in effect. So, um, and I know that doesn't seem right to be like, uh, yeah, Hugh Hefner was about equality. He would sexually objectify women of any color, but he, he did have black women in his magazine, working at his clubs, working in his administration in a time where that was not common at all. Um, And I I think that that is huge. He also, in the Playboy establishment, women were able to work their way up from playmates to administrative positions working in media, uh, marketing, management, operations. Like, And this was also a time before women entered the workforce in droves, um, which generally in general didn't happen until the 80s. And so starting in the 60s, he was employing women and allowing. And, and, And in what era, like we talk about sexual stigma and a lot of women who do sex work or OnlyFans or that sort of thing, or even appeared sexy at any time, you know, you're a, once you're a stripper, it it feels like society makes that a scarlet letter that you can't tell people if you want to have a career, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you've displayed your breasts for money. I'm sorry, but you, you're no longer employable in any realm other than sex work. Um, and, and I feel like that stigma still continues today. So the fact that you could start as a model and work your way into a, a lifetime corporate career is, is really impressive. Um, and uh, so, so th- that's where the legacy becomes complicated, right? Because the sexual re- revolution was great. It was about people having fun, enjoying each other's bodies, expressing themselves sexually. Monogamy was no longer this artifice that it was because like, listen, before the 60s, people were still having multiple, they were having premarital sex, but like if they got pregnant, they had to marry that person or that teenage girl had to go away to a nunnery and have her baby and give it up for adoption and deny that it ever happened. Like it was so very hush hush. Men cheated on their wives, but like maintained this veneer of monogamy instead of what the sexual uh, revolution brought forth is like, okay, well, you can you can have sex with whomever you want to and you can be open about your terms of that and you don't have to. It doesn't have to happen in this sort of realm of uh, Victorian Christian morals. Um, and so, like, that was very liberating for women um, to be able to admit to premarital sex take birth control pills, et cetera. Um, and it should be said that like back to, um, you know, integration, am I using the right word? Uh, you know, he had black artists and performers on his playboy, uh, TV show 
And they hung out for the whole episode because on other shows, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. would perform, but he wasn't invited to come sit on the couch for an interview. And so the fact that um, Hugh Hefner was treating black and white entertainment entertainers the same was unusual for the time. Um, and... Uh, the sexual revolution was good, but I also feel like what happens with the sexual revolution is that women are expected to be casual about sex when, uh, and, and I'm not saying that, that there aren't women who are casual about sex. Plenty of women are, hey, when I drank, I was, um, but, uh, you know, biologically we are not as casual about sex because, again, when you are having sex with someone, like women get a release of bonding hormones when we have sex with someone, um, particularly if we orgasm. And uh, and that's because it's so rare for men to bring us to climax. Waka waka. Um, No, and and it's because it comes with the risk of pregnancy, conception and, and parenthood and stuff. And so like we tend to take, um, just at a, at a base, like evolutionary psychology level, we take sex a little more serious, but then there became this expectation of sexual liberation. And I think that like what was happening in the sixties parallels a lot of what I call the raunch culture of the early aughts, which is what I was, uh, you know, brought up in what my young, my twenties were. The era of the girls next door, the era of getting drunk and being taken to strip clubs on dates, like you, there was this this party girl expectation that you were supposed to like, you know, flash your tits. Your you, listen, we all were wearing low rise pants with our g strings hanging out. That vajazzling was a thing, um, and I know I have a lot of young listeners who maybe don't know what vajazzling is. Maybe they do because the early aughts fashion is making a comeback, but it literally was getting all of your pubic hair waxed off and then having Swarovski crystals glued onto your pubis. Like what? Like it was just this era where we were supposed to be casual with our sexuality and it wasn't like in order to be cool you were you were supposed to be able to have sex without feeling have sex with someone the first night you met them like it it was a very weird time but that was that expectation like are you cool are you liberated like because if if you if you aren't into casual sex then you're a square or you have hang-ups and god forbid you have hang-ups um in the 60s, like, God forbid you aren't groovy. Um, and so it's weird because I feel like a lot of the time when people engage in raunch culture or um, aggressively open sexuality, that it's performative and perhaps not genuine to who they are. Um, and I say this to someone who's like read Neil Strauss's books about hookup culture and a failed attempts at monogamy and like 
all of that was coming from a place of internal brokenness and like nothing can nothing distracts you from uh, hurt or confusion or fear more than like sucking a cock more than blowing a load you know what I mean like live for tonight let's get wasted let's hook up I'll let you film it because who cares I'm cool um and 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 that's weird right that's weird but also like if you um I don't know when those societal trends become common uh if you don't engage with them like you you're just you're not hip and now it's different because I feel like sex is all about consent and stuff and they say that like young people are having less sex than any American generation before them like they just talk about it they talk about their sexual identity but they don't ever fuck anyone um and I love Tim Dillon's uh, musings on that. If you don't know Tim Dillon, he is a comedian. He is a homosexual. He is a former subprime mortgage broker. But he has a lot of funny musings on a, on the way sex works today amongst young people, which is that, like, people aren't really fucking and they're talking about it. Um, but anyways, what was I, ta- I was talking about Playboy. Um, and so I, I, the reason that I decided to talk about it, aside from the fact that I'm obsessed with Playboy, um, and I'm open to both sides of the story, the fun story, the, these women get careers, these women have moved up, they'd be like, I mean, if you, Pamela Anderson, Jenny McCarthy, Anna Nicole Smith, like these are people who had careers built on having been playmates, which is why women are drawn to the playboy lifestyle and becoming playmates because it can be such a career jumping off point. What what isn't part of that narrative is all of the women who succumb to drug addiction, suicide, overdose, etc. as a way to deal with the trauma of having engaged in those worlds. So it's like what you see is these beautiful women having a good time and like what you don't see is every man around them telling them that they need to lose weight. Uh, The fact that for decades, uh, Hugh Hefner's friend, um, and I forget his name, it was like his doctor feel good and his daughter wrote a book. Um, What's their name? Jennifer Villasignor. Um, Maybe it's just Jennifer Siganor. I don't know. Sorry, guys. I didn't take notes. But, um, you know, this was his Dr. Feelgood who like lived with him, partied with him, was one of his best friends and also wrote amphetamine prescriptions for the girls to help them cut weight and keep weight off, would do amphetamine injections. And so these women who would find themselves in the Playboy environment were women who were compared to the men around them, right? Because you have you have Hugh Hefner, who is the cult of personality. Um, and, and then you have his friends who are also successful and the celebrity males hanging out at the parties, the legendary parties. And these women, these are women who they don't have money. They don't have career. They don't have power or influence. What they have is their looks. And perhaps, you know... D- 
they've made the conscious decision where it's, this is all that I have. So I am going to play this card, this hand that I've been dealt in order to level up to gain my own money and notoriety and power. And and it's so funny that people like look at women who do that as, oh, well, they use these men to get ahead. Um, but like the men are using them. So it, it, that's not actually like using a person. That's an exchange. Um, that's commerce. Uh, and I admit that like I've spoken poorly of women um, in the past, particularly, you know, my my first degree was in fashion and um, it's a notoriously low paid um industry, it's common to do two years of an unpaid internship before gaining a salaried position. Um, and salaried positions in Manhattan in fashion are, are generally like $25,000, $30,000 a year. At least they were at the time that I was in it, which was 2009 and 10. Um, and so the friends that I had from school who were able to make careers out of it um, were ones who had came from wealthy families or um shacked up with bankers, you know, hooked up with finance dudes, like they lived with these guys until they got their careers off the ground. And lo and behold, as soon as they became financially independent, they happened to also fall out of love with that person and the relationship ended. Um and I know so many women who like they've I have a friend who like God bless her. She got her master's in computer science while living in a luxury apartment with this guy. Like she didn't have to work her way through school. He paid the rent, bought the groceries, paid for her tuition. And so she was able to graduate with her master's um, with no student loan debt and was able to focus on school while she was in school and not just, you know, work or have to work as well. Um, and the minute she graduated, she moved out and like, that does seem like um, she used him. But at the same time, like, he used her. You know what I mean? Like, she kept a home for him. He got sex. Like, it it, it wasn't 100% one-sided. So, like, when people are like, oh, these girls knew what they were getting into. Like, they, they were attracted to the money and the fame and whatever. And they – you're – maybe – like, you're right, but they also entered a world where, all right, the reason I'm talking about this is I re- I, I talked on uh, the most recent Patreon, which as of recording, I haven't posted, but I, as of you listening to this, I've probably posted it. But I spoke about the feelings of being broke and in a relationship with someone who has money and feeling like, because I because the things we were doing were on his dime that I didn't have the ability to say, I don't want to be doing these things. Um, and so it, I think it led me to, to, to once again, examine that dynamic of being, okay, I don't have money. I don't have power. I have nothing. So I have to listen to what you say. And God bless the women who are like bold enough to know, like, 
I can't be bought. So just because like you have more money than me doesn't mean you own me. Like fucking God bless those women because we need to all aim to be like that. But like when you're broke, you feel like shit and it affects your self-esteem. Um, and so I think particularly in a city like LA, okay, so the Playboy Mansion was a place in Chicago initially and in 1974 they bought the one that we all know the playboy mansion west in los angeles and so particularly in a city like la where there is such egregious wealth disparity and power disparity if you are a nobody you know you're broke you're flat chested and you're surrounded by hugh hefner and uh vince vaughn and uh fucking Bill Cosby hanging out raping people at the mansion like I I I think it's very understandable to see that uh those women would have low self-esteem and be easily manipulated um and if you can't put yourself in the shoes of someone like that then like maybe you've never truly been disadvantaged (laughs) You've never been the little orphan Annie of your social circle. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I've, I've been to, I, I briefly dated someone who was a TV producer and like, let me be honest, this person was functionally illiterate, mentally ill, like, and he worked for a TV show where basically he would steal BuzzFeed articles and then make a TV segment about that. Like, you know, top 10 uh, domestic hacks. Like he would just, like he wasn't a smart person. He wasn't a creative person, but like he brought me to a work party and I'm surrounded by people who work in a national television show. And, and then the people who weren't part of that, it was their spouses who were like commercial airline pilots or nurses or like whatever. And I'm like, they're like, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm an artist. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, well, who do you work for? And I'm like, well, I don't. And they're like, well, what do you do for work? I'm like, I'm a barista. And like, it, it did make me feel small. Um, I have less insecurities about that now because it's just like, listen, I've chosen a career that's, uh, it, it, you, you net, <laughs> you net a lot of profit with like, le- like it has less of a hold on your life. Um, you know, when you're not, at work, you're not at work. It works not interrupting your life. But like it does make you feel small. And so if you think about the mindset of that and the same reason so so as I'm thinking about these things, AE premieres this new show called Secrets of Playboy. And I've been totally looking forward to this because like I said, I consume any media related to Playboy. I love beautiful women. I love beautiful clothes. I love vintage footing footage. Like it's fucking everything. And I'm watching this show and my, the second episode kind of centers around Holly Madison, but then it shows like interviews with his girlfriend from the seventies, who's explaining the same dynamic of him having a main girlfriend and pitting the other girlfriends against her. Like basically the most obedient girl moves into the, the, the the enviable main girlfriend position and then all the other girls it's like well why why aren't you obedient like her why can't you be more like her and then all the other girls hate her and if if women step out of line he's he was pretty cruel to them um 
and his girl from this his girlfriend from the 70s who is they're telling she's telling her parallel story flashing between her experience in the 70s and Holly's in the aughts which are the same experience the girlfriend from the 70s says that he that Hugh was obsessed with Charles Manson and um he just he he talked about it all the time couldn't get over how could this guy which by the way Charles Manson was five foot three and mentally ill um and not good looking like how could this guy have these women who like go to jail for him they get out they're still in love with him like how can he get this level of devotion from them and then i you start to go oh my god these are these are parallels because charles manson would sell this image of family, right? Like, are you orphaned? You feel dejected? Your family kicked you out? Like, because he would pick up homeless girls, like homeless hippie girls and be like, well, come stay with us. We'll feed you. We'll give you love. Love bombing is very dangerous. Um, and so to someone who is a, in a, a wounded, weak position to all of a sudden be like, you're going to give me food, shelter, love, like everything that I'm missing. This is, this is why a lot of men join the military. Let's be honest. Like we're going to give you food, housing, money, a career, camaraderie. We're going to build you into a better person and you will become one of us. You like, don't you want to be one of us? And like, you look at the military and the respect that they get, and you're like, yeah, absolutely. And so, like, that's what Charles Manson would would offer to these people, these women who were down and out, and it uh, inspired a lot of devotion. And Hugh was like, admired that about him. Like, he's a fucking kill. He's serial killer. Like, well, masterminded serial killings. So weird, but like that's what Hugh did because he would bring women in. Okay, you you will invite you to the Halloween party, the Midsummer's Night's Eve party. Well, that you'll start coming every Sunday for pool day, and you'll you'll see this place where on the facade, it's oh my god, it's this gorgeous place, right? It's opulent, and there's beautiful people, and like at Sunday pool parties, like people would bring their kids. Like, so it's like you have like this family environment where um, where like people who feel lost and alone are like, oh, well, maybe this is my family. And I think like if you can remember being a teenager, how it'd be like, you, you decide on something and be like, this is who I am now. Like you discover punk music and you're like, oh, I'm a punk. Like, and I'm going to cut my hair and I'll get the clothes and I'll get the records. And like, now I have an identity, you know what I mean? And so like in, 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 and I'll go to punk shows and I'll make friends and like you do. And, and so it's like, that is kind of the experience that Playboy offered where it's like, are you beautiful and lonely? (laughs) Well, have I got a place for you? You know what I mean? And um, it's interesting because Holly Madison, uh, similar to me, I like to think of myself as the poor man's Holly Madison, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, she, much like me, was like late in life diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And so she discusses... Re- looking back at her life um 
in terms like through that lens of being like oh that's why I struggled so much socially because she talks about never being able to connect to people always feeling alone and like just like struggling and she thought well if I become famous then I'll instantly have connections because people feel connected to famous people and in that way people can feel connected to me like um, and she moves to LA and she starts going to the parties and was like, you know, people think that I moved into the mansion and I dated half for the money, but what drew me in most was the sense of community. And I thought finally a place where I can be part of something and I can be involved. And if you have, you know, watched the girls next door or followed her all, you can see that's kind of the role that she played where she kind of was a pick me girl. Uh, one of my favorite podcasters, Princess of the Bi Pumpkin podcast, refers to pick me girls. She was kind of the pick me where it was like any sort of event. She was sitting up front next to half, fully participating when a lot of the other girlfriends or, you know, playmates that were around just kind of wanted to like party like she actively wanted to be part of all the goings on at the mansion because to her that was her family and community that she'd never really felt. And um, a lot of people give her shit because she wrote a book about her experience there and being manipulated and being brainwashed. But like, you know, she cut her hair short to look like Marilyn Monroe because she thought that you know, Hugh was obsessed with her to the point that like Hugh bought the crypt above her. Like they're buried next to each other. So fucking creepy. Like I don't know. Like, it's just like her, his violations of Marilyn Monroe perpetuated even in death. Um, but like she cut her hair short and he like lost his shit on her. Um, and she wore red lipstick once and he screamed at her and made her look cheap and hard and old and like, you know, so she basically realized, okay, well, in order to get along in this relationship, which I'm in, I, I like live here. This is my life. It's easier if I just do what he says. And that makes me feel like it makes me feel some type of way because as someone, I, I think if you know me from the podcast, especially historically, like if you're a longtime listener back to the shoe days, you might think of me as like a very bold and outspoken person, but um, I am extremely conflict avoidant. Uh, I, I talked about on the most recent Patreon, a, a thing where I, I, I like was having a nervous breakdown about telling my friend something. Cause I thought it was going to ruin the friendship. I just didn't want the conflict. And then like, <sighs> believe it or not, I told him the thing and, and everything was fine. Patreon.com slash sex, drugs, and spirituality. If you want to listen to a two hour episode where I expose too much about myself, um, but uh, as someone who is very conflict avoidant and um, I really related to that because I, I do often become who the person I'm interacting with wants me to be. And like at work, I call it offering the friendship experience where like I fawn over people like, oh my God, you look so pretty. I love your outfit. I love your hair, blah, blah, blah. You're so funny. You're so interesting. And like, I don't, I don't mean any of that, but like people love to be flattered. And if you show them a positive reflection of who they are, they like you because like, 
A lot of people, they don't really care about you, to be honest. They care about how you make them feel. So if the reflection of themselves they see in you is the, is positive, then they immediately like you, you know? Like, and, it, and then it'll be like, well, you don't even, you don't know anything about me, but because I'm, I'm nice and, and congratulatory to you, you have decided that I am a good person. Um... So I, I, and I recently, when I was having my, my breakdown over telling my friend, I didn't want to do this thing. Um, and I thought our friendship was going to end and I'm, I'm crying to my boyfriend and being like, I just, I don't know. It's so hard for me to stand up for myself because I just become whoever people want me to be. And I don't even know if I know who I am anymore. Um, and it's why it was so important to me to live alone um, because, I, number one, I like being alone. I like my spaces. I like designing and creating and having a, a space that is my womb. But also, like, because that's who I am in social environments, it's important to me to have all alone time so that I can reconnect to who I am and, like, I haven't had that in a long time. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, um, I, I, listen, my ex that I lived with did give me a lot of space. More space than most people give each other in relationships, probably. I don't know. But, um, because he didn't work, he was always home, I didn't get a lot of alone time. And so it, it reached a point where it was like, am I, who am I other than his like, yes, woman, other than who I am, because we're different people when we're around different people. Like, you know what I mean? You're, you're different when you're around your parents versus your friends versus your boss, like whatever. And so if I'm never alone to like level out. Do I even know who I am anymore? Like I, I just tend to, I start to feel really claustrophobic and I feel like lost in the sauce. Like my brain doesn't feel like my own because I, you know what I mean? And then when that becomes your whole life, because like Hugh Hefner encouraged his uh, girlfriends to uh, quit their jobs, like, be, and he would give them an allowance, like they had an allowance and a curfew, and uh, like all of their actions needed to be recorded and reported to him, and so they were socially isolated, which is like a method of cult control, right? Because then it becomes all you care about is the infighting between the girlfriends that he's playing against each other to induce obedience. You know what I mean? Like in the way that like on reality shows, like when you film them, you don't have a phone, you like you're, you don't have access to the outside world because they want everything in your mind to be your interpersonal conflicts because that's what they are, they're trying to film. Right. Um, and if, you are having a fully realized life, whether or not your roommate ate your last crackers, like it isn't that important to you. But if you're not allowed to leave the house, the things that happen within the house become of greater importance. And so like your roommate eating the last year crackers becomes World War III, like in the example of like the real world. And so 
what you did was isolate these women. So like the things that became of importance was the interpersonal drama and workings of within the house. It was, are you pretty? Are you thin? Are you compliant? And, um, what was I going to say? And, and so, you know, you end up with a Stockholm syndrome situation where it just becomes, okay, if, if you're a person like me and you don't, or, or, or Holly, uh, you, and you don't like conflict, then you become hyper obedient because you just don't want to ruffle any feathers. And if, when you stand up for yourself, it's met with pushback, you just learn, okay, well, I am not to voice my opinion or concern. I am not supposed to say anything to the contrary because it's going to be, I'm going to get pushback. And in order to maintain my domestic peace, I'm just going to go along to get along. And and like, I don't want to be that person. I'll be, I'll be really honest with you. Like, I don't want to be that person. I want to be me and, and authentically me. And sometimes I feel like I can't. see this is this is a podcast where I, it's about a topic and then I just talk about myself. Um, and so, like, if you have a problem with that, please just don't listen because it, this is not an NPR podcast. This is not news program. I don't have a research department. I don't have a fucking script. I'm a person in my apartment and I am speaking on things from my heart Um and I'm speaking on how the things that I learn cause me to reflect on my life. Um, because like that is what makes me a curious person. Like this show has always been about exploring my curiosity. And um, I'm just very curious about the world. And I like to read about different people and different lives. And in, in turn, that allows me to learn about myself and to grow. Um, and, uh, if you don't give a fuck about me, like that's fine. <laughs> that's so fine. But just like go listen to a news pro programming podcast about Playboy. Um, read Holly's book, read Isabella St. James's book. She is a fucking, she's a spiteful cunt. I love it. Uh, read Jennifer Siganor's book. Um, read their books. Don't listen to my fucking podcast. Listen to their audiobooks. Holly reads hers. I've heard it's very good. Um, I read it. I didn't do the audiobook. Um, fuck, if you're curious about sex and ranch culture, read The Game by Neil Strauss. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so sometimes I'm like, I, I can never be myself except when I'm alone. Um, Somewhere along the line, like, I was, like, such a rebellious punk rock person, but, like, maybe even that was acting um, because, like, all of that has faded out of me and I, I don't – you just get tired with age, to be honest with you, and it's, like, you pick your battles, right? And, like, I just choose to, like, never battle. <laughs> like, I, I think it's admirable in a way that, like, I don't get hung up over the minutia of life. Like, I don't have work conflicts or whatever, because, like, ultimately it doesn't matter. Like, am I getting paid? Whatever. It's fine. But, like, other times I'm like, okay, but, like, some, like, you, when they say pick your battles, you, that means sometimes you do have to pick a battle. Like, sometimes you do need to fight and advocate for yourself. And I generally don't. And I, uh, I generally, like, maybe don't know how to be myself. 
around other people. And hey, guys, maybe that's why I don't I take psychedelics alone, uh, because the idea of being able to collapse into a space where I'm fully me around other people, I just can't even conceive of doing that. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you've heard me talk about my uh, physical and emotional intimacy issues. But anyways, woo, uh, I don't, it's so weird. Sometimes like if you, if you ever want to like cry, like you feel like a pent up cry, like a constipated cry, just talking to a microphone alone. I feel like I'm like totally fine. And then I start like reflecting. I, I start doing this podcast. Um, and then I like, I, I, I rattle loose all of the all of my pain that I don't feel on a daily basis. But like when I start recording, it's like, Ooh, um, so, so playboy. So along the way, because like Hefner was all about image, right? Which is why the women have to be a certain way and whatever. And if you look at his girlfriends over the years, you'll see that like, he's always had multiple girlfriends, but like they used to be more diversified in their looks. And by the two thousands, they all were like the same shade of blonde. Like they were like interchangeable and that was so like if they did leave like it was just a revolving door of women they were all the same like hey maybe he wanted it like the manson girls but like pretty manson girls but make it instead of long greasy brown hair make it overdone bleach blonde hair um (laughs) yeah here i am judging the manson girls on their looks but like Dude, hippies just don't do it for me. You know what I mean? Like bare feet, greasy hair. I, I, Harry, I, I just don't. It's not my, it's not my bag. Um, I also just sense a sinister energy with all hippies. And maybe I'll do a Patreon episode where I talk about the Source Family documentary. Fuck, maybe I'll do it on the main feed. But like the Source Family creeps me the fuck out. Um, any communal living situation freaks me the fuck out. And so like having this, um, docu-series on E! discuss how the Playboy environment, it was cult-like and like the fact that I didn't see it before, it's so, it's so weird how it's like, I, I saw everything, I researched everything, I know the ins and outs of this culture, but like I never realized it was a cult until someone just said is a cult and then you're like oh fuck oh fuck it is um but it because like so he like may you know eventually over time it's you have to all these girls have to look the same and like he would pay for plastic surgery if he approved it like and with which doctors you know what i mean and apparently like him and his buddies would sit around and look at like you know photos of the girls and decide like you know who needs what and what doctor they should go to to have it done like so gross like so gross and then like the women because again they aren't allowed to have external lives so like their looks become hyper important especially when they're being pitted against each other you know what I mean so if you can be thinner and have bigger boobs or be blonder or like whatever like you are going to get treated more nicely and like that's what everyone's jockeying for is just can you be nice to me can I be treated like a person and the more obedient you are the more of a human being you are treated as uh which is crazy right like the more that you (laughs) because that's 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 treating women as pets and the way that like the 
when I train dogs, like the better behaved the dog is, the more privileged they are. Like if you are a well-trained dog, you get to go places with me. You can run errands. You can even stay at a hotel. Like if you become a good dog, you get a more liberated life. And, um, that's how these girls were treated, uh, which is insane. And I should be calling them women. But like, because everyone calls them girls because that's what Hugh calls them. And in the cult, everyone who works for him is always like, oh, Mr. Hefner. Oh, he's so kind. He's so generous. He's so loving. And so like, if you are a woman in this environment, you think, well, that must be true because everyone fucking says it. So like any sort of like hint you get of him being a bad person or cruel or manipulative, you're like, well, that can't be true because everyone adores him. Um, and apparently he was a love bomber and just, I love you. You're the best. I've never wanted to have kids with anyone before I met you. I've never felt so at ease with someone before you, like all this stuff. Um, that like, maybe it's why I'm like comfortable in relationships where the person doesn't really like me that much. <laughs> Because it's always like, oh, my God, I love you. <laughs> like, I'm like, are you love bombing me? Is this manipulation? Um, my boyfriend and I are, like, very much in love. But, like, sometimes when he's like, I think you're the love of my life. And, like, I couldn't get through things without you. Like, blah, blah. Sometimes I'm like, okay, reel it in, Romeo. Like, I'm uncomfortable with this. And I don't know if that says more about me or him or whatever. But I'm just like, hey, hey, calm down. Listen, we're in love. We're in fucking love. We love each other. We love to fuck each other. Let's stop. Like, you don't need to... It doesn't need to get all flowery. Don't be a queer. Um, <laughs> I don't say that or think that. Um, I was just doing an exaggerated caricature of me as a cold-hearted person. Um, but anyways, so, you know, Playboy is all about image and... Uh, along the way, like, there have been, you know, many, 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 many rapes that happen at the mansion. In the not, not, I'm not saying by him, but I'm saying by people at the mansion. Like, it was known, like, oh, fuck, Bill Cosby's here. Like, people knew that, like, you had to avoid him. But if anyone spoke out publicly, you'd be blacklisted and shunned and the revenge porn would be leaked. Because, like, let's not forget that. Hugh Hefner had his entire property wired with cameras, every single room, every single room and microphones. So one of the butlers says that a girl, you know, girls would try to confess to them and like talk about like, oh, I'm having trouble with this or that. But they knew to be really careful about what they said to the girls because it was being recorded on microphones, which is insane. Like what, how much time in the day does Hugh Hefner have that he's just listening to conversations? He's probably watching on cameras to be like, oh, so-and-so's going to the butler pantry. I'm going to turn on them. I'm going to listen to this hot mic. Like, it's crazy. It's fucking crazy. And so, you know, the, between, what was they talking about? I was talking about the rapes. So like people knew that you were not to speak out about any sort of sex crime or um, assault that happens on grounds because you will be publicly discredited because they have they have videos of you being fucked they have you know you've been drugged out of your mind and put on a leash and 
filmed getting fucked by a series of guys because like this shit happened there and like we've been sold this beautiful image of the girls next door and even the magazine and like oh well Hugh like supported abortion rights he's he supported uh the ending segregation he supported authors that had been blackballed by other media outlets like because like that whole thing about I read playboy for the articles like it has great articles well it had great articles but it's like, but also all this dark stuff was happening. And so say it's like you come forward and you say, I know three girls who Bill Cosby has drugged and raped. This isn't 1974. I, I know that this has happened three times. Well, guess what? They're going to release all this footage of you that will discredit you. And then everyone will know you. You're now a lying whore. You're a lying attention whore. You came to the mansion for attention and fame and money and you fucked anyone to get it and now you're trying to get fame by discrediting America's dad, Bill Cosby. Like that was the environment. Um, Jennifer Siganor, I think I'm now finally halfway through the episode remembering her name correctly. She said when she did a media tour for her book and she was very careful to not speak ill of Hef because she, so her dad was Dr. Feelgood. She grew up in the mansion, like, which is insane. Um, but she was very careful in writing her book to not speak ill of Hef to hide details because she still saw him as like an uncle figure. But he called her to congratulate her on her book and then was like, you know, hey, like, can you send me a list of all the next interviews you're doing? Like, I would love to watch them or whatever. And then what he did was have his people call those media outlets and get her interviews canceled. So she couldn't promote her book because he didn't want, obviously, people reading this book where, uh, spoiler alert, she has an affair with one of his girlfriends and like he knew about it. And it turns out, I learned from the documentary, Hugh tried to get them to have a threesome um, when she was only 17. Uh, but she, that wasn't even in the book. But like Hugh went ahead and like blackballed her to try to suppress her book. Um, because, and, and one of the women it's teased in an upcoming episode is talking about how she wrote a book that was never published because of threats to her physical safety. And like, she had to hire a bodyguard, um, just insane, insane things. Um, and I'm not saying that like, like some people view him as this sweet father figure, like in everything I've read about Dorothy Stratton, who was a playmate and was murdered by her estranged ex-husband in a really horrific way that like, I always knew about the murder, but then when I learned the details, it was, uh, it, it bothered me. But when she came to Hollywood with him, Hugh was very supportive in trying to get her to get away from him because he sensed bad energy with this guy to the point that he banned her husband from the mansion. Um, and so like, I think that he does look out for the girls. He does want to nurture them on their career journeys, but only if their careers are in line with what he wants for them. If they, you know, if basically like if you behave, if you're good enough, then you like, if, if you're a trained, oh, if you're a trained dog, like you can get these extra privileges, you'll get more treats. Um, and so like, that's where it becomes complicated because some people are saying like, you know, they're like, well, he was always good to me. He looked after me. He supported me. And it's like, yeah, but like, did you have to fuck him in a room full of 12 other girls? Like, and that's the weirdest thing is like the dynamic of the sex because 
they would go to clubs two to three nights a week. And it was expected after they returned home from the clubs, they would all go to his bedroom where uh, flannel pajama matching flannel pajama sets were provided to make them look even more like little girls. And like they all had to take turns hopping on his dick and in between being on his dick, like fool around with each other. But like in the meantime, he was playing these girls against each other. And like the main girlfriend was always hated by all the other girls. And she had to fuck this dude in front of these girls who hated them. Like imagine trying to have sex in front of the people who hate you more than anything. And, but if you don't like, then you you no longer have your, your job as the girl. It's so fucking weird. It's so fucking weird. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm just, the, the culture of that is, is very weird and it's interesting to think about how basically how like being socially and economically disadvantaged can lead you into doing things that you would have never expected. Um, like, and I'm glad the stigma of like sex work is, is going away because like, like so many people have to do sex work to fucking eat these days. Like it's like this, the stigma is fading, but like, um, but like, that's how people end up staying in marriages. Like, and it's just like, fuck, I don't know. Anyways, what I'm saying is be wary of wealthy men. Cause like they're used to getting what they want. And uh, like it, it, with that, with that sort of privilege comes entitlement. And like, I don't trust entitlement people because entitled people, because if they are not given what they want, they will take it because they believe that they deserve it. And I was recently talking to someone about the, the Kobe Bryant rape case because many moons ago, a customer had said like, he didn't believe that Kobe Bryant raped that lady because she willingly went to his hotel room. And I shut that down pretty fast by saying, well, when I was violently raped, um, I willingly went to that person's apartment, but I didn't consent to any of the things that happened after that. I didn't consent to being held down. I didn't consent to having my underwear torn off. I didn't consent to being penetrated. I didn't consent to him removing the condom halfway through. I didn't consent to any of that, but I went to his place. So just because you go to someone's hotel room and like that, the, that person backed down pretty quickly. And so I was telling someone who knows that person, um, because that person was recently, uh, found out to have, uh, attempted a sexual assault on someone else that we know. And I was like, well, yeah, I believe it. I believe that he doesn't think that what he did was assault because he thinks that Kobe Bryant couldn't have possibly raped a woman because she was willingly in his hotel room. And my friend said something very poignant, which is like, well, Kobe Bryant's probably used to getting everything that he wants. And so he didn't stop when a woman resisted because he could not possibly fathom someone not wanting to succumb to his sexual whatever. Um, because like that woman, I believe had physical injuries from that assault. Like, and just a reminder, no one comes out as a victim for attention. Like we don't want to be victimized. We, it's very difficult to even admit to ourselves that we were victimized, let alone to come forward and then have our, our accounts questioned and, um, uh, doubted, uh, you know, et cetera, and having to be re-traumatized every time we have to tell the story again. So like no, no one comes forward and, and says I was raped for attention or money. 
I, I just cannot believe like maybe it has happened, but like it's a statistically insignificant amount of cases. Um, and so, but like, but I think it was poignant what my friend said, which is like, yeah, he's wealthy, he's famous, he's used to everyone just doing what he wants to do. So he felt entitled to do what he wanted to do to that woman because in his mind, it was his, it belonged to him. It was his for the taking, right? Because he's, he gets what he wants. And so, um, I think there is something to be said for being on guard uh, around wealthy, powerful people. Or like, you know, hey, pursue your own paper chase so you're always the boss bitch in the scenario. Like, for real. <laughs> um, I hope this was entertaining. I don't know if it was, but... Uh, Hey, read those books. Watch this docu-series with me. Um, it's very enjoyable. And most importantly, have a happy hump day. <laughs>